Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Talk They Hear You podcast, What Parents Are Saying, Prevention Wisdom, Authenticity, and Empowerment. I'm Debbie Burnt, Director of Parent Movement 2.0, and I'll be your host. Today, we are talking to Dr. Emily Klein. She's a clinical psychologist and assistant professor of psychiatry at the Boston University School of Medicine and the Director of Psychological Services for the Wellness and Recovery After Psychosis Clinic, also at Boston Medical. She is an expert on early intervention in psychosis and the needs of families dealing with mental illness, substance use, and addiction. Her research focuses on mental health access, treatment outcomes, and family communication. Dr. Klein recently published a book entitled The School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids, which is accompanied by a free e-learning module that covers much of the information in the book. Before we jump into the interview, I just wanted to report to our listeners that I tried the technique Dr. Klein describes in this episode right after we finished recording. It worked amazingly well. Dr. Klein recommends just trying it to see what happens. She says you might be surprised, and she was right. I was talking to my 19-year-old about finding a job this summer. The conversation started out a little rocky, but as I got more curious, instead of monologuing about everything he should be doing, we ended up in a conversation. We talked about how he looks at life and how to factor that into his thinking about work, and he shared some things he was feeling embarrassed about in his job search so far. Finding myself in a real conversation with my kid felt so good, and he seemed to feel less stuck as well. So don't hesitate to try motivational interviewing with your families today and enjoy our conversation with Dr. Klein. So welcome, Dr. Klein. How are you? I'm great. Thank you so much for having me on. Oh, you're so welcome. We're really excited to talk to you today. But real quick, we always ask all of our guests if you're a parent, and if you are, how old your kids are, if you don't mind sharing, just so we know where you are in the parenting cycle. I am. So I have a seven-year-old and a four-year-old, and I wrote a book about teenagers. So everyone is welcome to call me in 10 years and ask me how my advice is sitting with myself. <laughs> That's awesome. Okay, but let's talk about that book. In it, you cover something called motivational interviewing. So tell us what that is and why parents might want to know something about it. Yeah, so motivational interviewing is an evidence-based therapeutic practice. It's not like a worksheet that you do or a particular intervention. It's a way of talking to people about making changes in their behaviors. And it was developed a long time ago, back in the 1980s. Um, two psychologists who were working in the field of substance use counseling named William Miller and Stephen Rolnick, found that they were having a lot more success when they talked to people who were ambivalent about making changes in their substance use using this set of kind of communication practices. And so it's something that I learned in graduate school. And then I entered the field and started practicing with my own patients and just found it tremendously useful. And so it's a way of speaking and interacting with clients or patients. Mm -hmm. So what's the crossover then to parents? Why would we want to be using it? So it's really a way of talking about change. Okay. More than anything else. It's, it's a way of talking about change, 
One of the basic principles is that when we think about making changes in our behavior, and this isn't just people with addiction, it's not just people with mental illness, it's literally most of us, we feel ambivalent. You know, we might want to make a change. We might not be totally happy with what we're doing. We might recognize that, oh, it would be really good if I quit smoking. It would be really good if I drank less. If I'm a teenager, it might be really good if I went to bed earlier or looked at social media less, made those kinds of changes. But there's a reason that we're doing things the way we're doing them, which is that on some level, it's working for us or it's helping us cope. So we all feel this ambivalence. You know, I want to change, but it's going to be hard or I'm not quite convinced. There's a reason I haven't done it yet, essentially. And so, as you can imagine, really, really useful for talking with people with substance use problems. But I've also found as a parent and just as a clinician that even when I'm working with clients who don't have substance use disorders, it's a very helpful way of talking to people about making changes in general. Even if somebody doesn't have a substance use disorder, as their therapist, I might really think they would benefit from getting more exercise, getting better sleep, taking medication every day instead of just once in a while when they remember to. Um, And it's a useful way of talking about those kinds of behaviors, a really wide range of behaviors. And I was working in a clinic with mostly young adults because it's been my specialty for a while. And the parents would call me up between their kids' sessions and say to me, hey, you know, I think this is going okay, but how do I get my son or my daughter to join us at a family wedding this weekend? How do I get them to take a shower? How do I get them to do the dishes? you know, normal family concerns, nothing that's really specific to therapy at all. And I just found myself kind of offering this just spontaneous coaching to parents saying, well, here's how I would approach it. I would come in and I would ask a question and I was describing to them motivational interviewing. And I realized it was so helpful to parents that I created a curriculum and have been teaching this to parents of teenagers and young adults who are struggling with mental health problems and substance use disorders for the majority of my job. So many things that you just said stuck out in my mind. Everything from we do all kinds of things either mindlessly or without thinking about it very much because on some level it's working for us, you know, and so that's an interesting concept just in and of itself. And then we definitely want to talk about substance use here in a minute, but this whole idea that parenting is hard, you are living with these other humans that you are also supposed to be kind of influencing and directing, and then you need them to be a part of this community that we're calling family and kind of pull their weight. (laughs) Let's just use that example of getting the kids to do the dishes. How would you approach that from a motivational interviewing standpoint? Yeah. So great example. And I'm remembering right now a mom who was in one of my research studies and this was specifically her problem. She was working nights as a nurse. And when she would get home from her shift, she was so tired and she would see a sink full of dishes and it would just enrage her. Mm -hmm. Um, Understandably, you know, I Mm -hmm. think we all go through that as parents and in family life. So what motivational interviewing wouldn't do would be to jump right in with either kind of 
incentives like, oh, you're not motivated. So I'm going to, you know, take away your phone if you don't do it or pay you $5 if you do do it. That might end up being part of the solution. I'm not ruling it out, but that's not where we start. Okay. So we would start with maybe just an observation like, oh, I noticed that the dishes are not done and see what the other person says because we'll learn a lot by not saying anything. You know, you might get a, oh yeah, mom, I'm going to do it in five. And then it's like, okay, great. Or you might get a more defensive reaction like, oh, everybody in this house is always on me. You know, that kind of stereotypical teenager. Or you might get, I just have so much homework to do and I just, you know, I didn't get to it. And that's a different reaction. So even in just not saying anything and making that observation, I'm kind of taking a beat to learn about what might be getting in the way. And then I might ask a question like, well, what do you think is getting in the way? <laughs> and, and try and learn more about that. And here's the hardest part to do is that if I get resistance, I don't necessarily get super confrontational about it right away, or I try not to. Instead, I try and roll with it by offering a reflection. So if the person says, I've got way too much to do, I might say, oh, you're really busy. You're overwhelmed today. And then it kind of puts us back on the same team and helps that person feel understood so that they might be a little bit more willing to engage in problem solving with me. And the problem, I mean, the dishes still need to get done. They do. How do you problem solve from, I'm so busy, I'm overwhelmed? Any thoughts? Well, I think that as parents, when we hear our kids either acting out and being disrespectful, we have one immediate reaction, which is like, you can't talk to me that way. And that's that's true. I mean, I don't mean to undermine that. I don't want my kids to talk to me in a disrespectful way. I really don't like that. And then when we hear them in distress and they say, I'm overwhelmed, I can't do it, we have a different reaction, which is like, let me fix that for you. I mean, not everybody, but I think these right. are pretty typical. Right. And so, but of course the dishes do need to get done. I try to sit on both of those reactions and just learn more about the problem as the other person sees it. So, okay, well, what got in the way? If, if the person says they're overwhelmed, you know, what's, what's going on with your homework? What's happening? Why is this an overwhelming day for you? Help me understand. And the point is not that we're not going to do the dishes or that I'm just going to do it and you don't have to do it. The point is that when people are feeling understood and they're feeling like they have some agency, they have some control over the situation and they're feeling confident, like, okay, my mom's not going to ask me to do anything that is too overwhelming. Uh, they're much more receptive to making those changes. So the way that it plays out in therapy for substance use is like if somebody goes, oh, this, you know, I got pulled over and I think the breathalyzer didn't work. You know, this is total BS. Like I, I, I wasn't, I wasn't drunk. And rather than saying, well, that's highly unlikely, you know, I, I really doubt that. And in fact, it was your third DUI. So I don't, I don't think that is the case. I would say something like, ah, so you feel like this is all a big misunderstanding. Mm -hmm. Help me see it from your side. And the point That's isn't right. that it's okay to drive drunk. The point is that I'm not going to get this person to really collaborate with me on how things might be different if they're not feeling like I want to get their side of the story. Right. So, 
some ways I could see where practicing this technique would be useful, but in some ways it's kind of simple. It's having a conversation instead of <clears throat> demanding and declaring and monologuing with your kids about whatever it is. Do you find that parents kind of take to it pretty easily or is there a reason why we don't kind of naturally stay curious with our kids long enough and that maybe it's hard to stay curious and we want to flip into either fixing it or insisting that that's not true. Any thoughts along why this, you know, just curious and let's figure this out together isn't more naturally a parent's approach. So in motivational interviewing, what you're describing, that that impulse to either jump in and fix it or to kind of wave the problem away and say, well, of course you can do the dishes. You know, there's really nothing right. getting in the way. So it's called the the writing reflex is the right. name for that in, yeah. in the practice. And I find it's really useful to name that because once you name it, you can kind of learn to recognize when your writing reflex is kicking in. And okay. the idea isn't that it's bad to have a writing reflex. You know, I really think in answer to your question that the writing reflex comes out of a place of love and caring and concern, and sometimes out of a place of deep worry and anxiety, especially okay. with your own kids. Right. But even as a novice therapist, I would hear something that sounded to me really bad, like the amount of somebody's substance use or they're not taking their medications as prescribed or something more low stakes, but you know, I wanted to fix it for them like right now. And I, it comes out of an altruistic instinct, I think. So I don't think that it means that you're doing anything wrong. If you have a writing reflex, it's definitely human nature. And with our kids, you've been doing things for them forever right? Since the day they were born usually. And so as they get older, we might think, oh, it would be good to just kind of get them to do stuff on their own, or this is their problem to solve. But in practice, it's really, really hard not to feel that either intense desire to help out of love or the big worries when things seem really high stakes. You know, doing the dishes is one thing, mm -hmm. and it might still push my buttons actually pretty bad, right. as it does for a lot of parents. But when kids start talking about things like not doing well in a course or trying drugs and alcohol, I mean, game on. Like, parents get freaked out. Yeah. And yeah, I like your idea about naming the writing uh, reflex and then being able to see it, you have some more options if you can see it versus just automatically falling into it. And then the seriousness of drug and alcohol use is just very real. And let me just ask you, the title of your book is The School of Hard Talks, How to Have Real Conversations with Your Almost Grown Kids. So is almost grown because these topics do get more serious as they get older? Both because the topics get harder and more serious, you know, bigger kids, bigger problems yeah, is what we say in, in adolescent mental health. But also because I think this set of skills and this way of thinking about communication, about change and about behavior is really a nice way to kind of transition from, okay, when you have kids my kid's age, you do just tell right. them what to do. And, you know, right. you might have a chore chart with the stickers and the rewards, 
and then they're 20 and those things don't make sense. I can't just tell a 20 year old, you need to go to bed earlier. It's bedtime, lights out. I don't have that kind of influence. And so I think that these skills are a nice fit for parents of all those almost grown kids because you're transitioning the relationship in those years. You're going from a relationship where the parent really is calling most of the shots. Though, of course, if your toddler's having a meltdown in the grocery store, it doesn't feel like you're calling the shots. <laughs> so even then, children do have agency and they don't just listen to us all the time. But you go from feeling like, okay, I pretty much call the shots to being like, whoa, I'm not calling any of the shots. And right. I don't really know how to communicate with my child in a way that doesn't elicit you know, defensiveness or I'm too old for this or don't talk to me about this. I'm going to do it my own way. Right. I really like that. And I don't even think we have to wait till they're 20, right? <laughs> right. Middle school and certainly ninth grade, 10th grade, 11th grade, where they're not wanting us to tell them what to do. And, you know, that's even a zone where as parents, we really still have a, a lot of guiding that we need to be doing, you know, whereas when they get to 20, it's really more I mean, they're adults at that point in time. So then it's really is their decisions on what they're doing and not doing. Yeah. Even with my kids were like kind of wrestling on the couch and having a good time. And then the bigger one got a little too rough and the little one was crying. Mm -hmm. And it was, I had a nice moment just yesterday and she's crying. And, you know, that writing reflex instinct is to rush in there, pick up the little one and scold the big one. Right. 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 And I kind of resisted that. And I was talking to the older one. I said, okay, it looks like things got a little too rough. What do you need to do to make it right? Mm -hmm. And he knelt down. He checked in with his sister. He said, are you okay? He rubbed her back um, oh and they picked a different game to play. And so even I think younger kids in my household, at least it kind of works. Yeah. Uh, sometimes they're responsive to that feeling of, oh, my mom thinks I have good judgment and wants me to kind of make good decisions. And you're really asking a question that you want an answer to, and you have to really listen to that answer. I mean, you are really listening to your children at that point in time versus just fixing things. Did I read in your book a line that says, when you listen, they listen? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because the point of the book isn't to just let them do what they're going to do and say, oh, they're 12, you know, right. They're making their own decisions. It's right. time to let go. I do think that it's better for kids when we can guide them. And I want them to listen to our advice and I want them to, you know, not use drugs and alcohol. I want them to do the things that are healthy for them. Right. But the point is that if you want to maximally have that influence, Mm -hmm. Sometimes your best way to get there is by listening really carefully to their concerns and their perspective. That's awesome. When we read, when you listen, they listen, everyone on the Talk They Hear You team was like, oh my God, it's such a perfect adjunct to talk, they hear you, right? When you listen, they listen. It's just really kind of, we hope our listeners are seeing the value of that too and why we would want to be talking to you. Okay, so I think you had three go-to phrases in the work, and I think we've heard some of them, but would you give us some more examples and, and let's go ahead and kind of switch into the drugs and alcohol topic specifically, and you've done that as well throughout, but pick a, 
a scenario and tell us how you would work through it. All right. Well, I think I live in a state where cannabis is legalized, but I've been traveling around and it's on everybody's mind. So maybe we should talk about cannabis because I think everyone's thinking, you know, what should I be saying to my kids Perfect. about marijuana? Can you give us different scenarios where maybe a child is already using versus a child who isn't using and we just want to have a conversation about drugs and alcohol or cannabis in particular? Because I think both are important. Yeah. So let's start with the latter because it feels a little more low stakes for people and it's it's very in line with the talk they hear you campaign, which seems really prevention oriented. Yes. So if you have a kid and you live in a state where, you know, maybe more people are using marijuana or you're traveling through and you see a billboard or it's a great opportunity to just start a conversation, um, even if that hasn't come up for them socially yet. But I think it's good to have these conversations in advance when things are kind of low stakes and nobody's in trouble. We're just talking to talk. There's so many opportunities, at least where I live, there's tons of cannabis stores, there's billboards on TV, there's plot lines where people are using, or you could just bring it out out of the blue. It wouldn't be the weirdest thing to do. But rather than start with a monologue about how bad marijuana is, uh, I recommend just trying approaching with a question. So you might want to say something like, so what are you hearing about marijuana or what do your friends think about it? Nice. And just listen to what your child says. You'll learn a lot. You might hear something like, oh yeah, everybody's using it. It's the bathroom smells like weed at school. Or you might hear something like, oh yeah, I don't know much about that. So those are two different scenarios, but whatever you're getting back, you want to try just doing a reflection to show that you're listening. Okay. So in the scenario where your child is saying, oh yeah, kids are definitely using it. The bathroom smells like weed. I think a lot of us panic when we hear that as parents Mm -hmm. um, and might want to say something like, well, it's really bad and I never want you to do it, which is fine. And again, Mm -hmm. I think you just have to save it for later in the conversation because again, when you listen, they listen. Mm -hmm. So I think you might say something like just to slow down the conversation a little bit. So a lot of kids are using Mm -hmm. and see what else they say. Just do those reflections Keep it short and sweet and try and get them talking in a non-judgmental way and ask questions, do reflections. And then when you sense that you're having a good conversation and they're feeling understood, then I think it is important to convey your own values around it, which is to say something like, well, yeah, it sounds like this is going to keep coming up for you. It already is. Mm -hmm. Um, my own advice is that I really don't want you using it until you're much older because, you know, it affects teenagers' brains or it actually can lead to addiction, which a lot of people don't know, or it can lead to mental health problems. I gave some of my own reasons there, but if I were actually having this conversation with an adolescent, I might tie that because part a little more closely to something I know about that person, if that makes sense. So if they're on the soccer team, I might say, well, I really don't want you to use it until you're much older because it can affect your brain. And also it might get in the way of your eligibility for soccer. Got it. And then ask them, what do you think about that? 
you know, just to keep that conversation going. It doesn't have to go all day. This isn't an an interrogation tactic, but to really have it be a two-way conversation where I'm making my expectations clear, but I'm also interested in their perspective and we can have a, a conversation about it. That's great. And sticking in the lower stakes topics category, if your child comes to you and says, what is that billboard? Or when we go to a party, why are there adult drinks and why are there kid drinks? Why can't, why can't I have the adult drink? Do you want to start asking questions back to them in that scenario too? Or would you just answer the question and move on? I would answer the question. Yeah. I I wouldn't be cagey about it. I, with my own kids, I say alcohol is not good for kids' brains and we just leave it at that. And so far they accept it. (laughs) So almost even not over explaining, just answer the question and see if they have more questions. Yeah, I think that's a good, I think that's a good idea, right? Because you don't want to overly focus on it and bring their attention to something that otherwise might be not that big of a deal to them. Right. right, Because it's a good example. Like what were those things with the smoke that Aunt Jenny was, I saw her in the yard. You could just say something like, oh, she was smoking a cigarette. It's not very good for kids. Kids aren't allowed to have them. Move on. Yeah. If they have more questions, I'll ask you. Yeah. I guess I could see myself launching into the three-minute diatribe about cigarettes or vaping or, you know, either how it's so bad for them or I'm not sure why Aunt Jenny does it or it could go on forever, which right now I'm thinking the situation may not require that. It might not. I mean, again, I was just reviewing some of the research on this. And there's these really interesting studies out of the Netherlands. And in the Netherlands, they do these like huge population studies with thousands and thousands of families that I could never imagine doing in America. Like people just don't have that level of trust with like, sure, I'll answer questions about substance use in my family. So, but it was really interesting because it was thousands of families. So it's big survey data, which can tell us a lot. You know, it's more reliable than our sort of one-off impressions. And they were looking at predictors of adolescent tobacco use, alcohol use, and cannabis use. And there was two major predictors in the studies that I read. One was whether the teenagers in their surveys described their parents as warm and supportive. That was one. And the other was whether the teenagers said, my parents are okay with it if I use alcohol, tobacco, or cannabis. Those were the two main predictors. And I'm like, that's pretty simple to implement, actually, all things told. I mean, you can just tell your kid, hey, you're not allowed to do this. Yeah, You don't have to make a capital case out of it. But if they know that, they're less likely to try it. Yeah. And it's funny thinking about that as a parent, that that might not be exceedingly clear to our kids, you know, that we're not okay with it. Right. Yeah. I mean, I think that some, it's very cultural, right? Like some families do have a more, you're allowed to try it once, or you're allowed to use it a little bit if I'm in the room or for parents who are struggling with substance use themselves, it can be really hard to implement rules that your kid can see that you're not following yourself. Right. So there's all kinds of reasons why people might struggle to convey those messages. But if you're able to, I think it's kind of an easy and very healthy thing to do just to say, hey, by the way, in case you're wondering, you're not allowed to do that. 
Right. Well, and I think too, in all of the legalization states for marijuana, I don't think parents think about that there is this community message just by the fact that we legalized that the community is okay with this and that our kids may just assume we are too if we haven't really said anything about it because they legalized it. So it seems like everyone is tacitly okay. I don't know. It becomes much more like the conversation about alcohol, really, at the end of the day, because yes, it is legal for adults and no, you're not allowed to do it. Right, right, right. So I want to get your opinion a little bit on modeling, because I think as parents, and especially of high school kids, we get more timid about telling them in particular not to drink. And a lot of us are drinking ourselves. So do we just have to stop drinking as parents of high school kids? Or is there anything that you would say about modeling? And is there any connection between what we model and motivational interviewing? I don't know what it would be, but is there any crossover there that we should consider? Interesting. I mean, hmm. I don't think that we need to completely abstain from substances ourselves in order to set some expectations with kids. That said, of course, a lot of kids do drink. You know, I can know that. I can say to my child, I really don't want you to. Right. And know that it's likely that they will. Right. Right. I can know those two things at once. And still have questions with them for them, like, yeah, what do your friends think of alcohol? I prefer that you don't do it, but mm-hmm. you know, tell me what's going on at the parties. A lot of that is kind of about being just not exactly modeling that I'm never gonna drink myself as a parent, but modeling a lack of anxiety around it and like a lot of curiosity, right? And I think it's hard to do that because we do have anxiety about it. Right. But I think that's kind of the tone, right? Mm-hmm. That's like, I really do want to know. I'm not going to freak out. And I hope you don't do it. That's interesting. I think a lot of our listeners know, but I don't know if you do. I have three kids and they're older. So I have 27, 24, 19. And my experience of being a high school parent for 12 years is that you have lots of parenting peers that are just okay with their kids drinking. And I guess maybe that is a type of, it's not modeling per se, but kind of, I mean, it's a, it's a perspective that they just haven't thought about very much, or maybe they have, and that's where they've landed, or maybe they don't know all the science that we all know now. And I think part of it though, is that they've stopped defining that there's a adult code of behavior and a child code of behavior and your kids get in high school and everything gets harder anyway, and you have to pick your battles. And the drug and alcohol battle sometimes just isn't on the radar screen. And I don't know if I have a question and all that, but it's just- No, I think it's a great point. And I think that, you know, the families that I work with are usually the parents who already know that there's a lot of gray area because they're having those problems, right? right? And they've communicated to their kids, I don't really want you drinking, or I really don't want you drinking, and they are or more common in the families I work with is cannabis use. 
And so, of course, we're not going to be able to control exactly what kids do 24 hours a day when they're not in our presence or even when they are in our presence. Um, Because unless you're physically going to lock that kid in their room, they're kind of going to do what they're going to do. And I think it can be better to just be honest about that because I think as parents, it's like such a huge responsibility if we feel like I need to control everything my child does. And again, the families I work with whose kids are struggling with mental health and substance use, they are really nice for the most part, right? Like the parents didn't invite this problem into their household. Uh, Of course, there's some kids who are using substances as a way to cope with a really bad home life or psychological trauma, but a lot of them also aren't. They're just using because it's something they fell into. And so when I work with parents, I I like to just clear the air around that. Like, I know you didn't invite this. I know that you can't control everything your kids do, but let's just talk about how you can leverage the control that you do have to be the most strategic that you can be when you have these conversations. Because it is a different conversation when you're talking with a parent whose child is already a regular cannabis user than someone who's like, oh, I just kind of want to put these rules out there and hope that my kid follows them versus I already know that my kid isn't listening to this and we're kind of beyond that. So it's a great distinction. I wonder if any of the parents in your practice wish they would have done something different. I hear you about it can just happen. And I really believe that. I feel like that's my experience too. And just my community, would they say anything to those younger parents who haven't quite gotten there yet? Or do they wish they had done anything different? And I know, I'm sure many do not, but Have you ever heard anything that you would share with parents that aren't quite there yet? Well, I was talking to a parent the other day who was reflecting on when her daughter was in high school and she said, oh, I took her door off her room because I didn't want her using. And that's really not what I usually recommend, but I'm always interested in learning from the people I work with. So I said, by the way, did that work? (laughs) And she said, no, it didn't work at all. But so I was like, okay, good to know. But you know, if that worked for you, like good for you, do do what works. But what I have heard from a lot of parents is when I teach them these strategies about approaching conversations, trying to keep yourself calm and cool and collected and approach with curiosity and ask questions and elicit information before you give your own perspective, they do say, gosh, I wish I knew this 10 years ago. I've heard that a lot of times. Yeah. And not that everything could have been avoided, right? but that we could have avoided some of the pain and suffering of the really volatile situations where people were screaming at each other because there's the actual suffering of like, okay, my child has bipolar disorder. This is really rough. And that I'm, I don't, I'm not sure that can be prevented. Like that is just something that happens in families, but the pieces about getting that adolescent or young adult into treatment, talking to them about their substance use, talking to them about their medication, talking about other healthy behaviors that are going to help them get better. I think a lot of the parents I talked to were like, oh, I wish I had known this. Like I could have really 
avoided some of the uglier situations that we found ourselves in. Makes so much sense. In some ways, it kind of goes without saying, right? If our communication is more effective, life is just going to be better in every possible way. I think the other place where parents say, I wish we had known this is because there's so much, I don't know, this is relevant for your listeners. It was a little far afield, but I think it can be so hard on a marriage mm. uh, when you're going through this and you're yeah. fighting as a couple about how to handle things and just like having a strategy, I think yeah. really helps parents get on the same page and yeah. be more of a team. I think that's a really interesting topic and we should actually try to just do a whole podcast around that sometime, how to cope as parents. But since you mentioned it, I'm curious, just this concept of apologizing either to your partner or to your kids, do you see, it's not obviously motivational interviewing, but there, it's certainly an element of communication. I don't know, any thoughts about apologizing to your kids? Some parents I think are probably good at it. Some I know really feel, I don't just even myself, you know, no, I'm the parent. I don't have to apologize kind of response. So I don't know any thoughts about that. Yeah. And again, it's so cultural and so personal. Yeah. I hate to kind of be prescriptive for all families. And I really think like a therapist, like I'm always curious about the specific person in front of me. And Mm -hmm. rather than saying, oh, everybody should do this or everybody should do that. But for me, I think it makes me feel better to apologize when even if I was acting in service of my values, I wouldn't necessarily defend my exact behavior. So I can say I was acting that way because I care about you and I want you to be safe. Yeah. And that's defensible, but screaming in your face and name calling (laughs) is not behavior I'm proud of. And yeah, I wish I could take that back. I'm sorry I did that. So So I think, you know, we can differentiate between, we can defend our values and saying, I know why I did that while still maybe admitting like, but it wasn't such a good thing to do. Yeah, I really like that. The nuance of things sometimes are really important, right? You're not just throwing out your values, but not defending behavior. That's just beautifully said. So I do love that writing reflex. And you've talked to us about approaching our kids with curiosity and reflecting back to them. Is that really all there is to it? Or is that just the tip of the iceberg? Or where would we start if if we wanted to start tonight and even more about your personal use of it? So I'll get myself in trouble if I say that that's all there is to it. Because (laughs) the people who really do motivational interviewing is their primary practice as like therapists. They Mm -hmm. really train in this and there's a lot of nuances to it. But what I found is that from my working with parents, that those are really the three main pieces to it. And also just to make sure that you're doing those things, the asking questions and reflecting back what you hear, and then transitioning into problem solving. A lot of it is just the skills are not complicated. It's just kind of the sequence is a little bit different for people. So when your child is having a problem or faced with a dilemma or engaging in a behavior that makes you nervous, 
ask them questions about it, repeat back what you heard, ask them, so what could you do to change this? And then say, can I give you some advice? And that's kind of like the my cheat sheet to an MI, a motivational interviewing guided conversation. And most of the parents who were in my studies actually were able to master that after a few sessions of coaching, which was very cool. But if parents want to try just one thing, yeah. I think the reflections are really interesting for people because it's very non-intuitive to just repeat back what you heard, mm-hmm. but there's tons of opportunities to do it. And sometimes I'll work with parents and they're a little skeptical. And then I say, just do me a favor and try it once. And they come back with all kinds of amazing stories about like where the conversation went next when they tried a reflection. So it could be something really low stakes, like, oh, I have this test on Friday. It's going to be so hard. And instead of being like, whoa, what, what's going on? I, you need to study. Are you, you're not studying enough. Is this teacher not grading fairly? To just take a breath and say, oh, it sounds like you're a little stressed about that. Or, wow, you have a tough exam coming up. And just see what happens when you just repeat back what you heard and then stop talking. Because usually it feels really good to be on the receiving end of a reflection, and that person will keep talking. It's fantastic. Any other recommendations on how to make yourself stop talking as a parent? Any? <laughs> I love the premise of your question. No, it's really hard. And sometimes it's hard to just ask a question and stop or do that reflection and stop because you feel like you're not in control of the conversation. Mm -hmm. And since it's, I'm assuming just parents and not teenagers listening, I feel free to say that teenagers sometimes be jerks, right? (laughs) So sometimes they're not so nice to talk to and they make you feel foolish for trying to engage with them or they Mm -hmm. roll their eyes at you. And so I think a lot of parents have kind of like a learned helplessness Mm. around it. All I can say is try to make peace with that vulnerability and give it a shot. I like that. That's a beautiful way to end. Thank you so much. And again, just to say it out loud, when you listen, they listen idea, I just think is a really powerful frame to add to our parenting and to see how we can get ourselves in that state of listening more and coming with curiosity, reflecting back, asking if they have any ideas, how to move forward or solve a problem, and then offer, ask if they want advice. It's actually quite inspiring. I have a 19 year old at home right now and we have some stuff to talk about. I can't wait to go try it for just a few minutes. Give it a shot. Good luck. Yeah. Thank you so much. We want to remind listeners the Talk They Hear You materials, including this podcast, can be found on the Talk They Hear You website. That's talktheyhearyou.samhsa.gov. All spelled out, Talk They Hear You, no spaces, dot SAMHSA, which is S-A-M-H-S-A dot gov. Please share the site and this podcast with your friends. The more we can be in conversation with each other, the better for everyone, especially our kids. Also, we would like to hear from you. Would you like to be on our show? Do you have any stories to share or tips or techniques that have worked or not worked for you as a parent? 
Do you have any questions for us or any feedback on topics or improvements of any kind? We know your input will help us design the most useful interviews possible. Please contact us at whatparentsaresaying at gmail.com for any of this. Again, all spelled out, whatparentsaresaying at gmail.com. This podcast is brought to you by the Substance Abuse and Mental Health Services Administration. Talk They Hear You is a national prevention campaign that aims to help parents and caregivers talk to their kids about the dangers and risks of underage drinking and other drug use. As a reminder, the views expressed here are not necessarily those of SAMHSA or the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Thank you all for joining us, and we'll see you next time.